remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. It was not my plan to be still doing the blueprint of the church series. It was my plan to finalize that series last Sunday. But then it happened. One seven had questions about baptism. Now, why did he ask these questions? Um, it would be my guess that he asked these questions because he's feeling a little guilty. All seven of the students told me in some way or another that what I was teaching was scriptural. They said that all my work with them, uh, I had given them book, chapter, and verse. But still, even though they admitted that I was right and they were wrong, they still would not change. They would not convert to New Testament Christianity. Why? Because they had a lot of friends at the church where they were attending. They had a lot of family, in some cases, at those churches. And in some cases, they were employed. They were two ministers working with me. And all seven were involved in their denomination. But this one guy, one of the preachers, called me after we had finalized the study series. And he said, I want to talk more about baptism. Because I think he was feeling guilty because what he teaches is not what I was teaching. I was teaching that baptism is the point and the place that God has chosen to wash away the sins of the penitent believer. And that's not what he was teaching. Now, let me remind you, don't forget about this morning's points from that sermon. Now, he said that he was saved as a young boy. When I quizzed him about being saved, here's what he said. This is quoting, exact quote, because I recorded all four study sessions. He said, I believed and I asked Jesus into my heart and I immediately felt different. Now, we're going to talk about the emotional part, Lord willing, the first Sunday in July. But let's look at the rest of that, okay? He asked Jesus into his heart. Now, here was my reply, quoting, Nowhere in the New Testament does it say a person who believes and asks Jesus into their heart is saved. I said to this man, I called him, let's call him John Doe. I said, John, prove me wrong. He could not. Because there's no verse in the New Testament that says that's how a person is saved. Now, John made some accusations. Accusation number one, he said, you're making, you're making a water ritual the focus and power of salvation, rather than Jesus' work on the cross. 
I strongly oppose that accusation. Baptism is not a water ritual. It is the step of obedience that God has chosen for His salvation of that penitent believer. And by the way, it's all possible because of Jesus' work on the cross. His second accusation, he said, you are contradicting the Bible fact that salvation is a free gift. I firmly believe that salvation is a free gift. We don't earn it. We can't merit it. It's a free gift. But God has placed some conditions on that free gift. And one of those conditions is baptism. Now, this concept that baptism is the point and place that God chooses to forgive the penitent believer is not new. It was the dominant view for the first approximately 1,500 years of Christianity. But as I mentioned this morning, we're going to talk about when all that changed. It all changed with a guy, Zwingli. Zwingli changed it all around about 1523. What did he do? He rejected the previous 1,500 years of Christianity. He rejected the teachings of the apostles. He rejected the teaching of the New Testament. He rejected the teaching of the early Christians. So why was he doing that? He wanted to justify infant baptism. Now, infant baptism had been around. Infant baptism had actually uh, been talked about uh, in the late 2nd century. And it was somewhat practiced by some people, but it was not the dominant view at all. Zwingli wanted to change that. He wanted to make infant baptism the dominant view. So what did he do? He wrote, Water baptism cannot contribute in any way to the washing away of sins. Even though the New Testament is clear that baptism does wash away our sins, Acts twenty-two sixteen, 16, he said, nope, that's wrong. Keep in mind, he rejected the New Testament, the apostles, the early Christians. Furthermore, he said that baptism... It's only a ritual. It's just a ritual. It's a public testimony of an inward faith. And he said that inward faith could reside in the parent of that child. You see, he's trying to justify making infant baptism the dominant baptism. He also taught that baptism was similar to, uh, well, Old Testament circumcision. It's just a symbol. It's just a symbol and it doesn't mean anything at all because you're saved with faith. Either the faith of a person who's old enough to believe or in his case, 
the faith of the parents was what he wanted to point to. Now, there's some problems here. John Calvin adopted Zwingli's teaching, and thus the Protestant Reformation adopted this false doctrine. And it became a very much a center point doctrine of the Reformation movement. So, so many, so many of the denominations that came out of the Reformation had this teaching as part of their belief. But see, Zwingli was opposed to what is clearly taught in the Bible. What did Jesus himself say to that group of disciples on that hillside in Galilee? Matthew 28, 19 through 20, he said to go teach and do what? Baptize. Mark 16, 15 through 16, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Acts 2, 38, when the crowd there in Jerusalem asked Peter and the other apostles, uh, what should we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And Ananias, when he finally came to see Paul, that time known as Saul, he said, arise and be baptized. Why are you tarrying? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Romans 6, 3 and 4, there Paul compares baptism to that burial. We bury the old man into the water, the old man of sin, and we come up as the new person. Paul clearly defended baptism in Galatians 3, Colossians 2, and then Peter also defended baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3. But Zwingli turned his back on all those verses. John Calvin and the others of the Reformation movement turned their back on all those verses. So now we have this era that is being taught. Faith only is all that's required, is what they teach, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, is there anything magical about the water back here? No. There's nothing magical about the water. It's just plain water. It comes from the Hot Springs Water Department. It's God who does the work. God has promised that person, that penitent believer, that if he or she will believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, he will wash away the sins. God does the work. And you better believe God always fulfills His promise. Now, after we had completed the four studies, and you're going to hear the other two in July, I asked John, what about your two accusations? Do you believe that I believe that baptism is just a ritual? He said, no, it's clear that you don't. Do you believe that I am discounting baptism and, or discounting God's uh, promises and, and that uh, baptism uh, is not required? He said, well, I've got some questions still. 
Here's what he said. What about the passages that teach that we are saved by faith? Hmm. Well, are there some passages that if you don't understand what faith is, biblical faith, is it possible for you to reach that conclusion? Well, yes. But did you notice I said if you don't understand what biblical faith is? John asks, what is it? Are we saved by faith or are we saved by baptism? I said yes to both. We're saved by faith. But it's a, it's a particular type of faith. And yes, we're saved by baptism. So what do I mean by all of that? Well, to understand how both statements are true, to understand how we're saved by faith, and to understand how we're saved by baptism, and have both statements true, you must first get the definition of biblical faith correct. Biblical faith is different from just faith. What do I mean by that? Biblical faith is not just a conviction of the mind. Do I believe, do I believe, let me mention something that I've never been to. Do I believe there is a city named Moscow in Russia? Now, I've never been there, you know. Do I believe there's a city named Moscow in Russia? Yes, I believe that. That's a conviction of my mind that I believe there is a city named Moscow. Biblical faith is more than just a conviction of the mind. It's full obedience to God. If I have biblical faith in God's promises, that means I'm going to have what? Full obedience to what God has commanded. Now, why do I say that? Look at Hebrews 3, verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Talking about those people who came in from the 40 years of wandering. And who did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who, what, did not obey. Notice the word in red there. They didn't obey. So we see that they could not enter in. They couldn't enter into the promised land. Why? Because of unbelief. Well, up there you said it was because they failed to obey. And down there you say it's because of unbelief. You see, when you have biblical faith, you will obey. They didn't have biblical faith, so they did not obey. Let's go a little further here. John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son, believes, faith, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, well, Jesus, you just said believe. And now you're changing it to obey. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, someone who really believes, he will obey. He will obey. Biblical faith 
entails both a conviction of the mind and a determination to obey. That I'm going to do what God has said I must do. Paul booked in this idea in Romans. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 16. Let's look first at Romans chapter 1. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for what? For obedience to the faith. Very last chapter, chapter 16. But now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to what? According to the commandment of the everlasting God, for what reason? Obedience to the faith. If you really believe in God, if you really believe in God's promises, you're going to do exactly what God has said to do. Biblical faith involves conviction, but it also involves obedience. If you really believe, you're going to obey. Now, to borrow one idea, this concept of faith, or you can say belief, this concept of faith is like a collecting bin. You know, sometimes we have a collecting bin and we put a, a lot of stuff in that bin. Well, it's, this, is, uh, this idea of faith is like a collecting bin. Now, let me illustrate. In Luke 10, Jesus is asked by a person, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus asked him, well, what do you read in the Old Testament? And the man says, well, to love God and to love your neighbor. Jesus says, correct. Well, Jesus, what are you doing? He's taking all of the commandments of the Old Testament and he's putting them into two bins. Some of them go into the love God bin and some of them go in the love your neighbor bin. But all of the commandments can be rooted back into those two concepts. When we talk about faith, we're putting into that bin obedience. Obedience to God's Word. Hebrews 11.30 By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. So writer of Hebrews, whoever you might be, what was it? What caused the walls of Jericho to fall? Was it faith or was it the obedience to the command to march around the city? Answer, both. It was faith. It was their obedience to God's command. Now faith and baptism go together. If faith and baptism did not go together, here's what we should do. Every man who has a gun, we should just go down here to the highway with our guns and stop everybody and say, hey, get out of your car. We're having a baptism. We're going to baptize you right now. Because we, we want people to be baptized. We want people to be saved. But that, does, that wouldn't work. That's not what God wants. He doesn't want us to force it on somebody. He wants the person who is baptized to believe, to repent, to confess. 
He wants that person who really loves his son to do what his son has said to do. What did Jesus say? We must be convinced that Jesus is who he claimed to be and repent. John 8, 24, Luke 13, 3. That's Jesus speaking right there. We must believe. We must repent. Furthermore, we must acknowledge verbally our belief that Jesus is God's Son. We could go to Matthew 10, 32 for the words of Jesus, or we could go to Paul and his writing in Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. It's the person who believes and repents and confesses who then is a fit candidate for baptism. We must be baptized for the remission of our sins. That's what Paul, at that time known as Saul, that's what he did. Now, did he believe? Yeah. He had received a divine vision, a divine revelation on that road to Damascus. He believed. He spent three days repenting, would not even eat. He was so just consumed with the guilt of his sins and, and wanting to change. And then when Ananias finally walked into the house where Paul was staying, you know, Ananias said, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. In other words, Paul still had a sin problem. Even though he believed, even though he had repented, he still had a sin problem. What is that step? What is that point? What is that place that God has chosen to wash away our sins? And that is in baptism. John, at this point in the study, John is not happy. I could tell by the look on his face. We were studying via FaceTime and John was not happy. But he wasn't displeased with me. He was struggling with his own guilt because he knew that he had been teaching all those years faith only, not the necessity of baptism. Now we're going to continue this study in the first week in July, Lord willing, and we're going to see what happened to John, okay? We're going to see what happened with John. And I'm not going to tell you what happened because I want that to be a, a surprise, okay? But in the meantime, once again, what did Jesus say? Believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. That is the easy steps. It's not complicated. It's not hard. It's easy. Now, I'm looking right now at a group of Christians, people who have done exactly what Jesus told you to do. But as a Christian, do you need to seek forgiveness? Have you failed to be a reflection of Jesus to people around you? Have you done things in your life? Now, I don't think any of us have done what the world calls the big sins. You know, the world likes to classify sins. But to God, there's no big sins and little sins are all sins. Have you sinned? 
have you brought shame upon your Lord because of sin? Do you need to ask Him to forgive you? Isn't it wonderful that God will forgive? 1 John 1, 9. The church stands ready to pray with you and for you. Will you please come as we stand and sing for your encouragement. Good